This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of lunate dislocation, or perilunate dissociation, from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Lunate slash perilunate dislocations are high-energy injuries to the wrist associated with neurological injury and poor functional outcomes. Diagnosis requires careful evaluation of plain radiographs. Treatment requires urgent closed versus open reduction and stabilization. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as the incidence of lunate dislocation, these injuries are rare at less than 1 per 100,000 injuries occurring annually. Lunate dislocations or perilunate dissociation is a commonly missed injury at approximately 25% on initial presentation. Moving on to the etiology of lunate dislocation, the mechanism of injury is secondary to a traumatic high-energy mechanism and occurs when the wrist is extended and ulnarly deviated, which leads to intercarpal supination. In terms of the pathoanatomy, the sequence of events involves the scapholunate ligament being disrupted, then disruption of the capitolunate articulation, then disruption of the lunotriquetral articulation, then failure of the dorsal radiocarpal ligament, and finally the lunate rotates and dislocates, usually into the carpal tunnel. Know that dislocation can course through the greater arc or the lesser arc. Through the greater arc, there are ligamentous disruptions with associated fractures of the radius, ulna, or carpal bones. Dislocations coursing through the lesser arc are purely ligamentous. With respect to the categories of lunate dislocation, the ones to know include a perilunate dislocation and a lunate dislocation. In a perilunate dislocation, the lunate stays in position while the carpus dislocates. And remember that there are four types of perilunate dislocation. A transscaphoid perilunate dislocation, a perilunate dislocation, a transradial styloid dislocation, and a transscaphoid transcapitate perilunar dislocation. Finally, in terms of a lunate dislocation, the lunate is forced volar or dorsal while the carpus remains aligned. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over the osseous structures in wrist anatomy as well as the ligaments. So as far as osseous structures in the wrist, you have the proximal row and the distal row. The proximal row contains the scaphoid, lunate, triquetrum, and pisiform. The distal row includes the trapezium, trapezoid, capitate, and hamate. With respect to ligaments in the wrist, the ones to know include the interosseous ligaments, the intrinsic ligaments, and the extrinsic ligaments. The interosseous ligaments run between the carpal bones. These include the scapholunate interosseous ligament and the lunotriquetral interosseous ligament. The interosseous ligaments are the major stabilizers of the proximal carpal row. Moving on to intrinsic ligaments, these are the ligaments that both originate and insert among the carpal bones. These include the dorsal intrinsic ligaments and the volar intrinsic ligaments. Finally, the extrinsic ligaments connect the forearm bones to the carpus. These include the volar extrinsic carpal ligaments and the dorsal extrinsic carpal ligaments. As far as the classification of lunate dislocations or perilunate dissociation, the one to know is the Mayfield classification, and this is divided into four stages. Stage one is a scapholunate dissociation, Stage 2 is a scapholunate dissociation plus a lunocapitate disruption. Stage 3 is a scapholunate dissociation plus a lunotriquetral disruption. This is otherwise known as a perilunate dissociation. And finally, in stage 4, the lunate is dislocated from the lunate fossa, usually volar, and is associated with median nerve compression. As far as the presentation of lunate dislocation, symptoms usually include acute wrist swelling and pain, 
and median nerve symptoms may occur in approximately 25% of patients. This is most common in Mayfield stage 4, where the lunate dislocates into the carpal tunnel. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a PA and a lateral. Findings on the PA include a break in Jalula's arc, the lunate and capitate overlap, and you may see what's known as the piece of pie sign, which is a triangular appearance of the lunate due to palmar rotation from dorsal force of the carpus. Findings on lateral views include loss of collinearity of the radius, lunate, and capitate. The scapholunate angle will be greater than 70 degrees, and you will also see what's known as a spilled teacup sign. An MRI is usually not required for diagnosis. Treatment of lunate dislocations can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes closed reduction and casting. However, keep in mind that this is not indicated when used as definitive management. As far as outcomes of non-operative management, there's usually universally poor functional outcomes with non-operative management, and recurrent dislocation is common. Operative options for lunate dislocations include emergent closed reduction slash splinting, followed by open reduction, ligament repair, fixation, and possible carpal tunnel release, proximal row carpectomy, and total wrist arthrodesis. Indications for emergent closed reduction slash splinting, followed by open reduction, ligament repair, fixation, and possible carpal tunnel release is for all acute injuries less than eight weeks old. As far as outcomes, emergent closed reduction leads to decreased risk of median nerve damage and decreased risk of cartilage damage. Return to full function is unlikely, and decreased grip strength as well as stiffness are common. Indications for a proximal row carpectomy is for chronic injury, defined as greater than eight weeks after the initial injury. This is not uncommon, as the initial diagnosis is frequently missed. Finally, indications for a total wrist arthrodesis is for chronic injuries with degenerative changes. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. We'll start with closed reduction, and the technique involves finger traps and the elbow at 90 degrees of flexion. The hand should have 5 to 10 pounds of traction for 15 minutes, and dorsal dislocations are reduced through wrist extension, traction, and flexion of the wrist. You will then apply a sugar tongue splint and follow with surgery. Moving on to the technique for open reduction, ligament repair, and fixation, plus or minus carpal tunnel release, the approach is controversial, but options include the dorsal approach, volar approach, and combined dorsal slash volar approaches. The dorsal approach involves a longitudinal incision centered at Lister's tubercle. This results in excellent exposure of the proximal carpal row and mid-carpal joints. However, it does not allow for carpal tunnel release. In a volar approach, you will have an extended carpal tunnel incision just proximal to the volar wrist crease. Finally, a combined dorsal slash volar approach have pros and cons. The pros of a combined dorsal slash volar approach is added exposure, easier reduction, access to the distal scaphoid fractures, ability to repair the volar ligaments, and carpal tunnel decompression. As far as cons, some believe that the volar ligament repair is not necessary. There's also increased swelling with a combined dorsal slash volar approach, there's potential carpal devascularization, and difficulty regaining digital flexion and grip. As far as the technique for an open reduction, ligament repair and fixation, plus or minus carpal tunnel release, you will fix the associated fractures first, then you will repair the scapholunate ligament with suture anchor fixation. Make sure to protect the scapholunate ligament repair 
and keep in mind that there is controversy of K-wire versus intraosseous circlage wiring. Finally, this technique may involve repair of the lunotriquetral interosseous ligament, and the decision to repair is based on surgeon preference as no studies have shown improved results. Postoperatively, patients will be placed in a short-arm thumb spica splint converted to a short-arm cast at the first post-op visit. The duration of casting varies, but are typically kept on for at least six weeks. Finally, as far as the technique for a proximal row carpectomy, you will perform this via dorsal and volar incisions if median nerve compression is present. A volar approach allows median nerve decompression with excision of the lunate, and the dorsal approach facilitates excision of the scaphoid and triquetrum. Complications to mention include transient ischemia of the lunate. Remember that a radiodense appearance of the lunate on radiograph is reported in up to 12.5% of cases. This is usually identified one to four months post-injury. However, keep in mind that transient ischemia of the lunate is benign and self-limiting. Therefore, you should treat it with observation. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 30-year-old male undergoes surgical management and subsequent hardware removal for a volar dislocation of the lunate. Plain radiographs two months after his injury demonstrate a radiodense appearance of the lunate concerning for ischemia. What is the next best step in management? And the choices are one, temporary scapho-trapezio-trapezoidal pinning, two, observation, three, proximal row carpectomy, four, capitate shortening osteotomy, and five, cast immobilization. The correct answer to this question is two, observation. So the patient has sustained a lunate dislocation with subsequent ischemia, which is likely transient. Transient ischemia after lunate and perilunate dislocations is usually benign and self-limiting. To quickly review, lunate and perilunate dislocations typically result from high-energy mechanisms and are commonly missed on initial presentation. Acute injuries require emergent close reduction and splinting with close observation for acute carpal tunnel symptoms. This is usually followed by open reduction internal fixation with a ligamentous repair. The ischemia and increased radiodensity that develops in some patients does not typically follow the clinical and radiographic progression associated with avascular necrosis, otherwise known as Kienbach's disease. Moving on to the next question. A 24-year-old stagehand fell 12 feet off a ladder while preparing a set. As he tried to brace his fall, he landed directly on his extended and ulnarly deviated left hand. He was taken to the local teaching hospital where radiographs were taken. An AP radiograph demonstrates a lunate dislocation. There is a triangular shape of the lunate, disruption of the natural arcs within the wrist, and the lunate is out of plane in comparison to the capitate and triquetrum. A lateral radiograph demonstrates a lunate dislocation, and the lunate is volar to the carpus. What additional data is most necessary to obtain before a reduction is attempted? And the choices are one, distal vascular exam, two, neurological exam, three, wrist MRI, four, Doppler Allen test, and five, DRUJ stability assessment. The correct answer to this question is two, neurological exam. 
So between 25 to 50% of perilunate injuries present with acute carpal tunnel syndrome. A neurological exam should be performed before and after the reduction of a perilunate dislocation. To quickly review, perilunate dissociation or lunate dislocations are most often sustained by an axial load to an extended wrist in ulnar deviation. As many as one quarter of cases are missed initially. Prompt recognition and reduction are critical, but a neurovascular exam should be performed both before and after the reduction. The reduction is obtained typically by extending the wrist, applying axial traction, and then flexing the wrist while applying dorsal pressure over the carpus. Surgical management is always necessary and involves ligament repair, carpal stabilization with pinning, fracture fixation if necessary, and possible carpal tunnel release in the presence of persistent median nerve paresthesias. Emergent management is indicated in the setting of acute carpal tunnel syndrome, which persists following reduction. Moving on to the next question. A 25-year-old cowboy falls onto an outstretched wrist while roping a steer. He has immediate pain and inability to move his wrist. He is taken to a local urgent care center and radiographs are taken. The physician assistant at the urgent care center sends you an image which shows a Mayfield stage 4 lunate dislocation. The short radial lunate ligament remains intact, tethering the lunate to the distal radius. What is likely the first wrist ligament injured during this particular injury pattern? And the choices are 1. Scapholunate, 2. Capitolunate, 3. Lunotriquetral, 4. Dorsal radiocarpal ligament, and 5. Short radiolunate. The correct answer to this question is 1. Scapholunate. So perilunar instability progresses in a typical fashion with injury to the scapholunate ligament, followed by the capitolunate articulation, the lunotriquetral ligament, and finally the dorsal radiocarpal ligament, allowing the lunate to rotate and dislocate. To quickly review, perilunate dissociation or lunate dislocation is most often sustained by an axial load to an extended wrist. As many as one quarter of cases are missed initially and another quarter present with acute carpal tunnel syndrome. Lesser arc injuries are purely ligamentous, following the classic pattern that we just described, while greater arc injuries include a combination of ligamentous injury and fractures of the radius, ulna, and or carpus. Injury radiographs will demonstrate disruption of Jalula's lines, a shortened carpal height, and lunate capitate overlap with the triangular appearance of the lunate on the AP view. The lateral view will show a loss of collinearity of the radius, lunate, and capitate, with the lunate positioned volar to the capitate. Prompt recognition and reduction are critical. Surgical management is always necessary and involves ligament repair, carpal stabilization with pinning, fracture fixation if necessary, and possible carpal tunnel release. And moving on to the final question. A 35-year-old professional football player complains of severe wrist pain after making a tackle. He reports paresthesias in his thumb and index finger. AP and lateral radiographs of the wrist show obvious scapholunate diastasis due to a perilunate dislocation. A lateral radiograph shows an empty teacup sign due to the empty articulation of the distal lunate. What is the most appropriate next step in management? And the choices are 1. Short arm thumb spica cast. 2. Long arm thumb spica cast. 3. Urgent close reduction and splinting. 4. MR arthrogram of the wrist to assess ligamentous injuries. And 5. Bone scan to assess vascularity.
the correct answer to this question is three, urgent close reduction and splinting. So this patient is presenting with a perilunate dislocation with carpal tunnel symptoms. The most important next step in treatment is reduction of the dislocation. This is generally performed in the emergency room, and if unsuccessful, immediate reduction and stabilization in the operating room is indicated. Cozen et al. note that these injuries can be overlooked and have variable propagation patterns through the carpus slash carpal ligaments. Malone et al. note that these injuries were historically treated with close reduction and pinning, but more recently, the trend is for open reduction and fixation for optimal anatomic restoration. That's all for this review about lunate dislocation or perilunate dissociation. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast. <laughs>